Thank you, Ken. Thanks, worship team. Man, a great job. Missing uh, Jason Martin. He's had last couple Sundays off, but thankful for the team and just not missing a beat and leading us to worship Jesus and songs that are rooted in the truth of Scripture and inspire uh, me, uh, just my affections for the Lord, hopefully you as well. Uh, welcome. Good to see you all. Uh, super good to be with you uh, to share in this time of worship together um, for the church family. It's always great to be with you. I know we've got several out traveling or with sickness or maybe just taking a vacation day to day. Either way, if you're joining us online, we're, we're super glad to connect with you this way, but, but we miss you and we want to see you. So hopefully, hopefully get to see you soon. Um, visitors, super glad to have you. Uh, hopefully this morning will be a blessing to you and, uh, and, and really want to connect with you in any way that um, that would be helpful to you. And so after the services, we have um, prayer partners at the front, something going on, just want somebody to pray over you, be aware of what's happening in your life. But also if you've got questions about the church or something that might come up in the sermon today um, or in our songs, um, just feel free to grab an elder after the service in the commons. That's why we're there. We're there to connect with you and answer any questions you might have. And so um, just want to lay that out at the front end. Uh, we're going to be in, as Kim was reading, uh, Ephesians 2 in, in just a moment, but I want to take, take a minute here, um, appropriately so, just to, to talk through a little bit of what we're seeing happening in, in the nation. Um, we had a, a large Supreme Court ruling uh, this past week, and, um, and on, on one hand, there is um, a lot of gratitude in the church among those who hold a biblical worldview, and, uh, and rightly so. Um, I think uh, there are those of you, I'm looking out across this room, who have prayed and worked um, fervently uh, for years, um, hoping and praying that God might overturn um, a, a Supreme Court case like that. Um, not because of politics, though. I want to lay that out there as well. Like, as a church, we want to understand our role in society. Um, we're not here to tell you how to vote, who to vote for. And the role of the church really is to disciple disciples, um, to, to help you understand the Word of God better, that you might have a biblical worldview and understand the world morally as God understands the world morally. And so as a church, we don't get involved in politics, um, but, but we are discipling disciples who will go out into the world as representatives of the kingdom and getting involved potentially in, in the political arena. Um, and so I want to just kind of say those things up front. If you wonder what our approach to these kinds of topics is, um, that's how we approach it. We address issues as they come up in the Scriptures. Um, we'll see some of that even coming up in Ephesians 2 later today. Um, but just want to stop and acknowledge that, like, our biblical worldview, really just thinking about two things that I just want to mention. Um, one, we believe that human beings are created in the image of God. Um, that when you see a human being, you're beholding something that is sacred, that God had a hand in. Like, every person's looking back at me. You are an image bearer of God. And that God fearfully and wonderfully made you in your mother's womb. He didn't wait to see what you were going to be like to decide if he wanted to be involved in your life. He was already involved, and he has ordained the days of your life, and the, the Bible would present um, a God who is actively involved in the days of your life even before um, your first breath, and we want to acknowledge that sanctity of life, and, um, and I also want to acknowledge, too, though, one of the things that can get lost in, like, debates like this is we can lose sight of the image bearer who is the mother. And, uh, and, and, and so as we advocate for those who don't have a voice, uh, we need to be mindful that we're advocating for all image bearers, all human beings. That's why we partner with uh, ministries like Grace House, um, who, who advocate 
for those who can't advocate for themselves. And, and it's not just about this image bearer in the womb. It's also about a mom and a dad. And I see Grace House representatives here. Um, just wanted to mention that, like, we, we, we support those kinds of ministries who, um, who see human beings as image bearers, um, who see uh, human beings as something that is sacred um, and bring honor and dignity to this, to this world. And, uh, and I know that a Supreme Court decision doesn't shift a culture. I want to acknowledge that, that our world uh, is becoming more and more secular by the day. Um, but we see something like this, and there's a sense of, like, okay, so... Um, Right? It's still worth fighting for, standing up for, speaking out for um, the things of God. I want to end, though, with just a little bit of maybe instruction or counsel. I think this is a, a piece that I see missing in the world today. Um, and so just from Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, some counsel on how to navigate controversial topics that I feel like will have some bearing even on how maybe you might navigate this conversation in your home or at work your neighborhood, or God forbid, social media. Uh, so, the Lord's servant, this is out of God's word, so if you're a Christ follower, this is instructions for you, for me. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And I don't know all the topics that the um, Apostle Paul had on his mind as he wrote this to a pastor, young pastor Timothy, but he wanted Timothy as a pastor to encourage his congregation, his church, to, to remember that they are servants of the Lord, and how they interact with the world is a reflection of their position as servants to the Lord. And they're to do so with gentleness, not being quarrelsome. And I like that able to teach component because I think I see that's where we're missing. Uh, in the, that's a piece missing from the conversations being had. And so if you're here today and you're like, you're a part of this church, you're like, I don't really, like, I don't know how to engage in the world in a way where I'm teaching. I feel like I'm just defending things and I have all these questions and I'm not quite sure what the Bible says on various topics. As your church family, as one of your pastors and elders, like we want to help you with that. You can't teach what you haven't learned. And so anytime something like that comes up, if you press in uh, to one of our pastors or elders, we would love to spend time with you, whether that's just you know, 30 minutes to an hour one day, or maybe an ongoing series of meetings where we help you understand um, how the Bible informs your view of the world, because if that doesn't happen, how in the world are you going to teach? And so I wanted you to just have that in mind. I don't know how you're navigating this topic or other topics in our culture today, and your family, and work, and those places, um, but but. But God has not been silent in his instruction to us as his servants. So I just wanted to edify you with those words. Maybe for some of us even correct <laughs> the way we engage the world. Um, and so just wanted to offer that up as we think about what um, this might mean for the kingdom. Um, if you want you know, more information on how to get involved um, in these kinds of ministries and to advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves. It's, it's, it doesn't just end with babies in the womb. It goes on from there. And so we'd love to connect you as well um, with ministries, organizations, and partnerships we have with people who are advocating for those who don't have a voice in our world today. And so just want to throw all that out there. Um, we are going to be in, uh, in Ephesians 2 and just kind of a on-ramp to where we're going this morning. Um, the series itself 
The book of Ephesians has this kind of thread weaving through really every verse, and it's this idea of the unveiling of the mystery of the gospel. And what we're going to find is that if you go through the book of Ephesians looking for Paul, who's writing this, to like put it in one sentence, you're never going to get there. But what will happen for us, even you see this in his prayer in chapter 3, is that it's this ongoing pursuit of this mystery, this ongoing, deeper understanding being revealed that what I understand about Christ and the gospel today, there's more to be had. There's more to learn. There's more to press into. So I never get to a place where I have it all figured out and I can say, oh, the mystery of the gospel is, and then put it in a sentence with a period and say, okay, I'm done. I'm ready to move on. It's this pursuit of the Christ follower to be uh, in this never-ending kind of pursuit of this paradox of why, why would God choose to love me? Like, like that, that paradox alone, that, that God would pursue me, that God would accept me, that God would die for me, is like, we're never supposed to get over that, and that's a large piece of the mystery. And so that's really what we're after in this series, is not that we would figure it all out, but that we would stir this, this desire and this longing and even a curiosity about the gospel and the everyday implications of what it means to be in Christ. Um, today, we're going to be looking at this gospel of peace and peace and the implications of what that means for our relationship with God. But a big part of what's going to come out of this second half of Ephesians 2 is that the implications of my relationship with you and you with me, even in places where there used to be hostility and division between us, how the gospel has, has moved in us to reconcile us together. And so I'm excited to, to, to press into this passage with you this morning um, we're going to start in verse uh, 11. If you've got your copy of the Word, I invite you to take that out. If you don't own a Bible, um, like we don't want you to be embarrassed about that. You're like, I really want a Bible. We put Bibles under the seats around you. Those are free gifts to you, okay? So grab that, take that home. That's our free gift to you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, originally when we mapped out this sermon series, um, the intent was to do the rest of Ephesians 2 today. Um, but as I got into it this week and, and realized, like, how much is there, um, we actually decided to break it up. And so um, if we won't finish the full chapter today. But even in what we're going to cover today, I'm already reading things going, oh, we're not going to have time to get into that. Okay, so just there's, there's kind of a disclosure up front. But what we are looking for are the big ideas here and this common thread being kind of woven through the passage. And so the the important thing is to, to stop and acknowledge, okay, what's Paul getting at here? He actually starts with a command. And, and I love when the Apostle Paul gives commands because they don't typically look like the commands that maybe we learned in Sunday school, the do's and don'ts, you know? Don't watch rated R movies. Do read your Bible every day. Make sure you check off your list. And like the, the, the do here, the command here is a command to remember. And I, I think it should be stated why we are prone to forget. We're, we're prone to forget the things that are most meaningful to us. We're, we're prone to forget um, the biggest moments of our life. It's why we take so many stinking pictures, right? 
There used to be photo albums, uh, but now it's like, like, I don't know, it, like, we haven't yet seen what will happen for, like, my generation or even my kids' generation when they get to end of life. Will there ever be a day they sit down and go through it all? I mean, it would probably take a couple years, whereas, like, the old school way, you could sit down and go through a photo album in about 30 minutes and tell the stories. Look, we have captured so much. Why do we do that? Because we know inherently we're going to forget. We're going to go on this epic vacation. There's going to be this epic moment, this epic thing we see, this epic thing we experience. We have to capture it. Some statisticians say that the modern family spends more effort on vacation capturing the memory of the experience than they do experiencing the experience that, um, itself. I don't know how to monetize that, but like there's more effort, more time, more energy given to the capturing so they won't forget than actually just being in the moment and experiencing the experience. Why? Because we're, we are prone to forget. And so Paul begins with this command, remember. Much like, much like last week, to get to the good news of the gospel, we have to start with the honest truth of where we would be without Christ. And so here, he reminds, he's using this idea of circumcision, uncircumcision, Gentiles and flesh, and he's, he's talking about those who were separated from Christ, um, but, but separated in a really kind of significant way, he's referring to Gentiles. And again, we won't unpack all of this, but the idea here is that and this is really interesting, okay? So church, see how this lands on you. If you look at how the Jews interact with the world in the Old Testament, so what we find is that God has chosen the Jewish nation, Israel, um, to reveal himself to the world. It's a big deal. That's quite an honor. Like, hey, I'm going to choose you. I'm going to choose you to reveal myself to the world. The world will know what kind of God I am because they've interacted with you. And we see this in Jonah even, right? Like they're like, hey, we want to know who Jonah's God is. Maybe he can do something about this storm. And the satyrs are like, whoa, Jonah's God's real. He actually, he actually reacts, he moves, he hears when we plead to him and they become worshipers, right? And so like, but here's what happens for the nation of Israel. You would expect maybe like, like an attitude of like humility and like gratitude. Like, wow, what a big deal. And maybe even like an eagerness. Hey guys, come on, let's, but, but it's not there, is it? Instead, we find contempt for those who are not like them. We even find like hatred towards those who are not like them. We saw that in Jonah's story in the previous series where, you know, Jonah's hesitation to go to Nineveh was one, his own life, but B, like he, he knew he was cutting against the grain of the Jewish culture. Like he was, those who celebrated him were no longer going to celebrate him. Like, Jonah, why are you going to them? Had there been this like culture of like humility and gratitude and eagerness, Jonah might have been cheered on, and some might have been, I'm going with you, right? Like, now think about that. Like, that's the pattern in the Old Testament. I just wonder how that lands on the church today. Do we have that humility and, like, gratitude and eagerness to share with the world what we've found? And so here, what's happening is he's, he's kind of pressing into that divisiveness between Jew and Gentile. He's pressing into these, these Gentiles who were once like separated from God. He says, remember that, he actually lays out six things I counted here he wants them to remember. He says, one, I want you to remember that you were spiritual Gentiles, okay? And you were this way both by birth and by the work of human hands because he mentions circumcision, right? This work of the flesh, He's going to superimpose that on the church today. Like for, for all of us, that's true. We have all been spiritual Gentiles at one point. We have been. 
You were born into a fallen world as a spiritual Gentile, separated from God. And, and not only that, we've all participated in that separation. You may have come to Christ at six years old. If that's you, that's, that's awesome. That's my wife's testimony. It's not my story. It's her story. I love that. But she still has a story. There was still a time where she was separated. And even her six-year-old mind was able to go, I want what those people have. I'm hearing the gospel, and I want this Jesus. I want in. I don't want to be a Gentile on the outside looking in. So whether you come to Christ when you're six or you're 60 or older than that, right, you were once separated by, from God as a spiritual Gentile. You were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the people of God, strangers to the covenants of God, these beautiful promises you couldn't take God up on one of his promises because you didn't even know what he promised. The Jews, the keepers of the covenant, the, these, these keepers of the promise, they weren't sharing it. with You didn't know what the promises were. You were an outsider. And here comes the worst news. Without hope. Having no hope. Having no hope. Does it make you sad to think about that? Do you know people in this world who you go, ah, that person doesn't seem like they have much hope? If you come across a human being in your life who does not have hope, it should make you sad. And maybe that's part of your story. Maybe you're here today and you're like, that's actually why I'm here today is I, I don't have any hope. Like that's, that's a bad place to be. Why, why live? Why get up the next day? Why face the difficulties of the world? This ever-increasingly difficult world. Why in the world even try if I don't have hope? And really at the center of it all is what? You were without God. Alienated, separated, spiritual Gentiles without hope. And, and here's really where you were. Remember this. You were without God. Now when Paul commands us to remember what he's what he's saying is, hey, don't forget your story. He's not calling you to like a self-thrown pity party. Hey, remember how sad you used to be? And let's make life all about how rough things used to be. But he's also saying, hey, don't neglect this part of your story. It's only been within the last year for me that I've been able to tell my whole story. I grew up in um, a really rough home environment. And I've always loved telling the story about where I met Jesus and then what happened next from 15 on. Um, but I didn't want to tell the rest of the story, what happened before 15, even to myself. I didn't even realize how much shame I was carrying around my own story. And through some, a lot of work and a lot of help from others, I've been able to get to the place where now I, like, I actually lean into telling my story. Because as I tell the story of what things used to be like, as I remember the hopelessness that I had and the desperation of my situation, right? The, the more I remember that and I'm aware of that and I tell that story, the more free I am of the shame that came with it. Even other people's shame that I was carrying. So this is not an invitation to throw a pity party for yourself and feel sorry for yourself. It's an invitation to tell your story. All, all of it. 
right? Like, don't just fast forward to the good stuff. Like, we can't even fully understand what Christ has done in your life unless we can first understand what? How you were separated. Unless we can understand where your, your hopelessness was. And so he commands them to remember these things. Just like last week, we get the, the but. But now. This is the good news. This is where, right, the hopelessness turns a corner and we get to get excited about what Christ has done in us. But now in Christ. That's really important. We'll, we'll go over this in just a minute, but this is the ninth time Paul has used that phrase in the letter. We're two chapters in. In Christ. Now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And he mentions four times in these verses this idea of peace. It's really on his mind and heart right here. The Holy Spirit is really stirring Paul's remembrance of the peace he has. And he's imparting that to the church, to us. He's reminding us now of this peace that we didn't have, that we have now. What's interesting is if you look at kind of this general theme unfolding here, we'll get to this more and more each week, but what Paul is pointing at is just really this, the significance of you now being in Christ. In Christ. And, and I, I, let's just look for a second. What are the mentions so far in the book of Ephesians? Ephesians 1.1, opening statement. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Verse three, two verses later. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Then he lays out all these spiritual blessings we have because we're in Christ. Here's one of them he mentions in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Verse 12 of Ephesians 1, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1.20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand excuse me, at his right hand in the heavenly place, he's talking about the power working in you. Remember how last week we talked about the bad news was we were all dead in our trespasses. The good news came in verse four. He said, right, but God made us alive in Christ. Well, just before that in chapter one, what Paul says is like, hey, Christ follower, those who are in Christ, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father, that power's working in you. You didn't get some other power. It's the same power working in us who are in Christ. Ephesians 2, 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Next verse, Ephesians 2, 7, so that in the coming ages 
he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.10, we are his worksmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it would be a complete miss to not really focus in on this idea of what does this mean to be in Christ? What is he, what is he getting at here? I think what follows is he's going to explain some more about what this means to be in Christ. He says that what? If we continue reading, he says we, we've been brought near. Just kind of casual wording, but when you start with separated, alienated strangers, brought near means something, doesn't it? It's not just casual reference to, oh, you got, God got close to you. He's like, no, 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 you who are far off, strangers, aliens, spiritual Gentiles, separated, like this being brought near is, the, is a reference to being brought near in Christ. You have been brought near by something. This is really important. By what? By stumbling your way into the church and finding God? No. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's really important. It's important for a number of reasons. First of which that comes to mind to me is this isn't the blood of a human being or the blood of a goat, the blood of a pigeon or a lamb. This is the blood of the Son of God. That means something. God's Son shed His blood to impact our separation, our alienation, being strangers in the world. We've been brought near. This is a big deal. By what? The blood of Christ. Now, this is one of those parts of where we are that we won't get to fully unpack. But what we have to understand is that from the beginning, God was very clear that with sin comes death. And the only way, once we have participated in sin and experienced death, the only way to be made right or be brought near to God is through the sacrifice and the blood. And for thousands of years, and we'll get into this in just a minute, the nation of Israel, they tried to get back to God. Sacrifices year after year after year. And Hebrews 10 says, like, on one hand, like we applaud, like you, you at least recognize you, you need to be brought near, but it didn't work. It didn't fix what was broken in here. We needed a final sacrifice, is what Hebrews 10 is pointing at, the sacrifice of Jesus. So no longer is blood needed to be shed for us because the sacrifice of the Son of God was enough. And so through this sacrifice of blood, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, we've been brought near. We are now in Christ. And one of the things that I think we misunderstand sometimes in the church is that when we think about the implications of this brought near, we just focus on the brought near to God part, which is a big part of it. But Paul's going to spend a whole lot more effort here talking about the second piece of being brought near. So it does mean that I've been brought near to Christ. The, the illustration that I like to use is this idea that, so if this cross right here represents me being brought near to Christ and God calling me to himself through the gospel, and I come to Christ and faith in Christ and what Jesus has done on the cross and the grave and through his resurrection, here's what I find, that when I get to the cross, I'm not by myself. It's not just me and Jesus. 
And that's where Paul's going to go next. Look at what he says. Not only have we been brought near by the blood that he might do something. What? Create in himself one new man in place of the two. There's going to be somebody else who meets me there. Reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. So the idea is that when I get to Jesus, when I get to the cross, and I see Jesus, I behold Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I trust in Jesus, and then I look to my right and to my left, I find you there. And where there used to be hostility, division between the two of us, it's not there anymore. The two now have become one, which is actually kind of that marriage covenant talk, isn't it, in the Bible? The two have now become one, so that that idea now is being placed not just on marriage covenant, but on, on our covenant with one another in Christ. So then you and I don't have an easy come, easy go relationship with one another, that at the drop of the hat, the slightest hint that you might not like me or I might not like you, we don't turn our backs on one another. So what Paul's really drilling down into here is the implications of the gospel that we have been reconciled to God, but we've also been reconciled to one another. No longer two men, now one. Reconciled us both to God in one body. I think it's a reference to the church. We come into our time together to worship. There is a personal side of what you're doing, you're experiencing in your worship, but there's a collective corporate side too. This is a we thing. When it's you know you throughout the week and it's Monday morning and maybe you draw away and get some solitude, you spend time with the Lord, that's a you and the Lord thing. We see that evidenced in Jesus' example when he was on earth. But what he's called us to on Sundays is to gather together in worship. Like to lift our voices together, to lift our worship together, to experience the nearness of God together. We've been reconciled in this one body. He mentions here this idea of abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, this can be a little bit confusing because Jesus said in Matthew 5, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so there's been some question about that. What is he saying here? So no longer the law, like, there's a couple things here to, to point out that I think will be helpful. One, even though the root word is the same in the Greek, they're actually, they translate differently. What Jesus said in Matthew 5 translates destroy. I have not come to destroy the law. Okay, so that's the Matthew 5 um, reference. Um, here, um, the reference is a little bit different. Um, the idea is that I have not, um, I have now come to render it useless. That would be a better translation of this Greek word here, abolish. Rendered it useless. What does he mean? Paul writes a lot about this. The only way to get to God without Jesus and what he's done for you was through the law. And so it was useful in the sense that it offered up an option for you. The problem was none of us could take it. Like there was another way to get to heaven, another way to be brought near to God. You want to know what it was? Just obey the commandments. Like perfectly. You, you, you and I have that option. The problem is we don't have that option. <laughs> because we're dead in our trespasses we needed another option we needed somebody to make that way for us that we couldn't make for ourselves. and so now Christ has rendered the law useless as an option for you to make your way to God the only way to God is through the blood of the cross 
There's another way to think of this as well, and this might be implied here, is the idea that the law is, is really um, all-encompassing. The law includes a section of like morality, understanding what it means to be moral or have God-like virtues. There's another section of the law that talks about like civil law, how to interact with people and everyday life. But there's a whole other section of the law that talks about how to be made right or how to be made clean or how to be reconciled when you've broken the moral law. And I think that that is implied here, if not explicitly what Paul is getting at. That part, right, is now useless. Hebrews 10. You can't get to God through the blood of a goat, the blood of a bull. There aren't enough animals you can sacrifice. There aren't enough human beings you could sacrifice to be made right. It's useless. The only useful or helpful way to get to God is through the blood of Christ. So we're not getting a contradiction in the scriptures where Jesus is like, I didn't come to abolish the law. And Paul's like, yeah, Jesus abolished the law as much as what Jesus was saying. I haven't come to destroy it. I've actually come to work in the law and fulfill it on your behalf. And now what Paul is saying is that as Christ did that and fulfilled the law and its demands for us, he's now rendered it useless. It won't, it won't help you. The only way for you to get to God to be brought near is through the blood of Christ. That's how I would understand what he's getting at here. Romans talks about this, 10.4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So if you're trying to become righteous by obeying the law, it doesn't work. In Christ, he is now the end of that pursuit. Colossians 1.22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Colossians 2.14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside. What did he set aside? The record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. He set it aside. How did he do that? By nailing it to the cross. That's a reference to the blood of Jesus. Are you seeing that connection here? Before Christ, what stood between you and God was the law. We were born into a fallen world corrupt broken marred by the shadow of death and we participated in it therefore we were dead in our trespasses dead men don't obey the law dead men don't fulfill the law see how useless the law was for us it was an option it was just useless it didn't help us any and so now christ has done for us what we could not do for ourselves Here, Paul brings up this imagery of this wall that has now been torn down, this dividing wall. It's in verse 14, he says that he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And so this imagery of like buildings and walls is going to come up again. And I think in some ways, Paul is thinking about the temple because we'll see in a couple of weeks when we finish out this chapter, he's going to talk about how you and I are being built together as this dwelling place for God. And the temple is no longer a building, but it's the people, right? And so I think that he has the temple on his mind. So as I understand this dividing wall, I'm thinking about like the wall that actually was at the temple that divided the, the courts of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews. Probably what was on his mind here. Like there was literally a physical wall between the two. We also know there was a curtain, a barrier between 
right? The, the holy place and the holy of holies, even for the Jews, they couldn't go all the way in to be brought near to God. And so, which, you know, he might've been applying all of this. I was thinking this week just about how that idea of, of, of the wall, like I'm old enough to remember the Iron Curtain, and, uh, right? And this, uh, this Berlin Wall, it was kind of a symbol of the whole Iron Curtain, this, right? East versus the West. And, and, and I bring that up because I don't think that's exactly what he's implying here, but I bring that up because I still remember the news images of how excited the people were to chip off chunks of this wall and literally tear it down. You remember that? There was this liberation that came with now knowing this wall is useless, and so now we're just with excitement and zeal going to tear it down. Oh, church, I wish, I hope that you see where I'm going with this. Oh, church, why in the world are we still so divided? This wall has been torn down between us. Whatever those are here, it was kind of a religious, racial wall that's being referred to, the Jews and the Gentiles. This is so much bigger than like a civil rights movement. You know that like at the end of, the civil, of a civil rights movement is simply that two sides basically agree to no longer be antagonists against one another. And I'll stay out of your way, you stay out of my way. Two becoming one is so much more significant than that. Right? It's like, I am pursuing Jesus. I am coming to Jesus. You're doing the same. It doesn't matter what color you are, what your language is, what your background is, whether you grew up in the church, whether you didn't. It doesn't matter. When I get to the cross, I find Jesus. I find reconciliation. I've been brought near to God, and I've been brought near to you. I think that's kind of the, the emphasis Paul is getting at here. He's already talked about our personal reconciliation, our personal being made alive in Christ. Now he's saying, oh, by the way, you get Jesus and you get his people. And he's not laying his people out like the Golden Corral buffet, come and take what you want and leave what you don't like. If anything, the church should be leading the way in whatever culture it exists to display to the world, to reflect to the world what real unity looks like, what real reconciliation looks like. He's not soft-selling it, saying, hey, remember how we didn't use to get along on the playground, but now we're adults, we you know, we know better now? He's saying, no, we used to be enemies. We had legitimate reasons for hostility between one another. He's not minimizing the difference between us or the separation between us, what he is, is he's maximizing what Christ has done. He tore it down and he killed the hostility. That's a big deal, church. That's not a civil rights movement. It's a glimpse of future glory. It's a glimpse into what heaven's gonna be like. I don't think we're gonna be divided up denominationally ethnically linguistically like i just love my youngest son's perspective he's like whatever i've told y'all story before four years old easter resurrection dad can i have a can i have a black body like my friend isaiah at school when i get my new body will jesus give me a black body like i just love that you guys see in the picture here he's painting he's not saying hey y'all just get along He's like, no, if you've been brought near to God, you've actually been brought near to each other. 
It's not either or. It's both and. This dividing wall has been torn down. What's being described here is, as I've already said, so much more miraculous than, hey, can't we just get along? It's the bringing together of two enemies. That's what he's describing here. Two enemies in a mutually loving covenant relationship. We're not just going to merely tolerate one another. We're going to share life with one another. We're going to serve one another. We're going to consider one another's interests more important than our own. We're going to be more than just cohabitators of the same geographic region or gathering in the same building. You sit on that side, I'll sit over here. Don't look at me, I won't look at you. So much more than that. We're going to be spiritual siblings, co-heirs with Christ. We're going to share in one family for eternity. And I think here's, the, here's maybe a warning that comes out of this. If you or I are not willing to stand shoulder to shoulder with people who are different from us in our worship of Jesus, then what Paul is saying is you're actually not living in the truth of the gospel. This is not a fringe theological teaching. This is the bullseye. Not only are we not living in the truth of the gospel, we're neglecting this future reality of heaven. It's a big deal, church. It was a big deal for Paul and the church in Ephesus, and it is certainly a big deal for us today in the world. This is not stick your head in the sand, can't we all just get along? We're told to stand, we're commanded to stand in truth with gentleness. Not arguing, but instead what? Teaching. Patiently enduring evil. Whether we're talking about the abortion topic or we're talking about racial tensions or we're just talking about how you really made me mad last week or I really offended you with something I said. If you get Jesus, you get me. And I get you. You see that? We have been brought near in Christ. Oh, how I desire for this church to be a reflection of Ephesians 2. And here's the thing. I don't know fully what it looks like. It's embedded in the mystery. But I want to pursue that mystery with you. I want to pursue that mystery with our elders. I want to every day be becoming what we already are in Christ as a church. That someday, somewhere, somebody might read this passage and go, what does it look like to live this out? There would be this, at least a decent representation in Solid Rock Church. I know a church that, that, that's striving for this. They don't have it down perfectly, but they're striving for it. Just a couple of questions for you to think about as we, as we wrap up here today. and We'll come back and finish chapter 2 and gets really exciting. The imagery is just beautiful, being built together. But I want to land here for today. I want you to just think about your own story. This is not an invitation to the pity party. This is simply time for maybe you to think about 
We talked about last week boasting and weakness, telling your story of weakness. How would you describe your life at the time that you were separated from God? Paul's just described it in this chapter in theological terms. It's been helpful. How would you describe it? How would you tell your story to somebody? How would you describe your hopelessness before Christ? I want you to think about not just past story, but like present day and like maybe places in your life where you're experiencing the hostility. What are some ways that you have or are experiencing hostility between you and others? Just because you're in Christ doesn't mean that everybody else is going to get along with you. Are you interacting with those who don't get along with you with gentleness, long-suffering, enduring evil, and teaching? How about hostility with those who are in Christ? It's a big deal to Jesus. He tells you how to handle this. Matthew 18, go to him. You guys need to work this out. Why? Because you've been brought near. You think about implications of the gospel brought near to God, brought near to others. Which one of those is more difficult for you? For some of us here today, it may just be so hard for you to believe that God would want to be near you. Maybe that's the piece you're struggling with today. Maybe you've kind of bought into this fear that if, if I'm fully exposed before God, he'll turn his back on me. Maybe you've bought into that lie and you've given credence to that fear in some way. And so you're struggling to believe that God would want to be near you in the first place, let alone sacrifice his son to bring you near. And you're like, yeah, he did that for all the other people in the room, but eh, not for me. Or maybe, maybe that's the easier part for you, and it's like, it's all the other people that are wrecking my world. If it was just me and Jesus, I'd be great, but when I get to the cross, you're there, and you kind of mess everything up. It's like, yeah, I get it. What part are you struggling with? Which is, which is more difficult for you? And here's where I would just land today. Are you willing to, like, to latch onto this gospel truth? You've been brought near. Like, even though in your head you're like, I don't know why God would want to have anything to do with me, are you at least willing to believe the truth where he says, like, I do want to have something to do with you? Like, are you willing to, like, latch onto that truth and go, okay, I'm, I'm going to believe that. I'm going to latch onto that. I'm going to let go of the lie that God doesn't love me. He doesn't want me. He's going to turn his back on me. And I'm going to take hold of what he said. I'm going to take him up on his word that he's done the work to bring me near. And I'm just going to step into this with faith. Second part of that is, if through our conversation today, through God's word today, He's brought to mind a relationship where there's hostility or division. Maybe there's some conviction stirring there and like you don't know quite yet what to do with that. Um, either way, like we want to meet you where you're at as a church. If you, if you need help in that, we want to help you in that, give you direction in that, pray for you in that. Point you to God's counsel in that. So where, where is this landing on you today? I'm going to pray over us. Um, our worship team is going to come out. And as always, if the song we're singing is like stirring in you and you're like, yes, that's, that's, that's what I need to sing right now, stand and sing with us. Make it at your prayer and your worship. But if like you're somewhere else right now with the Lord and wrestling with something and you're, you're free to stay seated, like stay seated. If you want to pray, 
want to kneel, you want to come grab a prayer partner, just kind of ignore what's happening in the room, you can do that. Like, hey, that's not where I'm at. I need somebody to pray with me right now. Um, feel free to do that. We have prayer, uh, prayer rooms out in the commons. We'll have our um, elders out in the commons as well. We're here now to meet you where you are and in whatever way God is speaking to you and stirring in your life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for inspiring and just literally dictating this, this book of Ephesians through Paul. We know these were affections stirring in his heart, but God, we recognize that ultimately you're the author of, of this word. And, and Father, just confess right now how difficult it is at times to believe the practical implications of the gospel. Like it's one thing to believe Jesus came and he lived and he died and he was buried and he resurrected. Like believing that gospel truth and then we get to the place where you tell us how that changes us and it's hard, God, for us to believe for some of us that you would even want to be near to us. A lot of us in this room, it's hard to believe that we could actually be brought near in like a relationship with another human being because we've experienced the opposite of that for so long. So Father, I just pray today that your gospel truths would land on us, that you, your spirit, would stir faith in us, a faith to believe, to trust, to take your word over our own, to believe what you say about us more than what we say about ourselves even, God. Thank you for drawing us near, for making a way for us to be reconciled. God, as a church, we're praying that this place could become, God, a people who live out gospel truths with one another. Father, I ask for your spirit now. Just continue moving in our hearts and speaking to us. And I just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.